I'd like to welcome you to week five of our series called The Church. Today we are in a, um, a smaller passage. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, only four verses. So let me just go ahead and read that on the front end and we'll get into it. Verse 19. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building being put together by him grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. This is God's word. So as I've said um, at the beginning of every teaching in this series, that this series is really designed to answer the question, what does it mean to be a Christian and a part of this thing called the church? And obviously, if you're going to answer that question, you need to know what the church is. And these verses, these four verses that we're looking at today are aimed pretty exclusively at answering that question for you and I. Uh, Before we get into them, I'm going to ask you to do something that admittedly is kind of impossible, but please try to do it anyway. Please try to hear everything that we talk about today like you were one of the believers at Ephesus. And what I mean by that is, please try to hear, as we talk about the church, please try to hear this like you have never heard of the church before. Uh, You've never seen what one is like. You've never heard, heard a horror story of how Uh, The leaders of one got it horribly wrong. You have no baggage that you're carrying into uh, the conversation, you know, when the word comes up, which is admittedly a very, um, very difficult, if not impossible thing to do. But that's where the Ephesians were. This is a strange thing for us to consider, but it's important to remember. The Ephesians at this point in their, you know, relationship with Jesus, they had no idea what happened to them when they became Christians. They really couldn't have. Because at this point, there was no the Bible for them to study. There was no uh, theologians or you know, classes that they could take or books from a library they could take out to explain the intricacies of Christianity, like, like the doctrine of the Trinity or substitutionary atonement or justification by faith. It just hadn't been around long enough for them to understand any of this stuff. They just knew whatever happened to them, something tremendous happened. And, and as they read for the first time in their life, you know, Paul's words here and what is to us, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, what they're reading for really the first time is how what has happened to them is supposed to look and what this thing that they're now a part of called the church is meant to be. And so I'm asking you, I've been trying to do this all week, to approach this content like you're hearing it for the first time, like you're hearing it, like the original recipients of this letter. And I'll tell you that when we do that and as we do that, just on a personal note, maybe you'll agree by the the end of our time together, I find these verses to be more convicting than anything else we're going to cover in this series. And I want to look at these four verses through two lenses. There's going to be two moves to this teaching. First off, uh, what the church was always meant to be. Secondly, how we can become what we were always meant to be. So first off, what the church was always meant to be. And I just, since it's only four verses, let me just go ahead and read all four of them again to refresh us with the content. I'm in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. It says, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. 
The whole building being put together by him grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. What you have here are three metaphors, three images that Paul very deliberately uses when, tr- when trying to get you and I to understand what we're talking about when we talk about this thing called the church. He says, first off, we're fellow citizens. Secondly, we're members of God's household. Thirdly, we're stones of this holy sanctuary. So we're citizens of a nation. We're members of a family. We're stones of a building. Now, I'll just tell you, uh, for whatever reason, this teaching was, was much more difficult for me to put together than other teachings were simply because I had to figure out what I didn't have time to say. And the more that I kind of got into these three images that Paul offers to us here, the more it dawned on me, we could do an entire, this is not an exaggeration, we could do an entire sermon series on any one of these images, meaning we could take weeks or months just talking about what it means to be a citizen in God's kingdom, a member of his family, or a stone in his sanctuary. So what I want to try to do, because I don't want to keep you here for an hour and 45 minutes today, is look at, one, look at each of these metaphors, each of these images, and just pull out one implication of it, of each one of them, in the hope that by doing so, we'll have a, we'll have a far more expansive vision for what the church is than we tend to have. Because I think all of us, myself included, tend to shrink God's vision for his church uh, down to something far smaller than what he intends it to be. So let's look at these three images. First off, first thing that we're told here is we are fellow citizens now, it's really significant that, that Paul speaks this way because in the Roman Empire, citizenship was a very rare and very valuable commodity. I was telling the 9 a.m., I have a, a book sitting on my desk that it was actually one of my textbooks when I was at Moody Bible Institute that I have not had to open for several years now. It's called The Greco World of the, um, the Greco Roman World of the New Testament. Real thriller, that book. And there's a, there's a chapter in that book that's just dedicated to citizenship. I kind of refreshed myself with that chapter this week. And uh, this is going to sound very foreign to you, just like it did to me. But in Paul's day, only about a tenth of the population of the Roman Empire actually had citizenship in that empire. One, only one of every ten people. And uh, it, it came with a lot of advantages, which is what made it such a desirable thing. First and for, foremost, your citizenship afforded you a lot of legal protection. Uh, For instance, uh, non-citizens could be dragged out and beaten in the public square by Roman soldiers just because they felt like, you know, getting a good exercise that day. But as a Roman citizen, you could not be beaten without a public trial. As a Roman citizen, even if you were found guilty of an egregious crime, you were spared some of the more brutal forms of execution that Rome had perfected, like crucifixion. If Jesus had been a Roman citizen, they wouldn't have even considered crucifying him because they didn't do that to one of their own. Um, Not only that, the Roman state never investigated the murder of non-citizens. They always investigated the murder of citizens. So it afforded you a lot of legal protection. Uh, It also exempted you from most of the taxes that everyone else had to pay. It also gave you access uh, to areas and forms of entertainment that were just reserved for people who had citizenship. And so the point is that that citizenship in the Roman Empire basically gave you access to a... a, um, just a higher quality of life that only a select few in Paul's day were lucky enough to enjoy. So you, you think about that and, and, and you, you consider how the Ephesians must have read this when they read this for the first time. And what Paul is saying here is that in the church, 
Now, this is a, this is a new idea. This didn't just evolve from cultures. Church, church did this before. Christianity did this before. Anybody else did this. What Paul is saying here is that in the church, regardless of your race, regardless of your gender, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your family, regardless of your background, regardless of how you're viewed outside in the world, Paul is saying in the church, absolutely everyone is owed all of the honor, all of the dignity, all of the respect, all the admiration that in his day only a select few were privileged enough to enjoy. So I think I've told you this before, um, but when I was in the fire academy, they told us on the first day that if we got below a 70%, we had one chance to retake our, uh, the test. But if we ever got below a 60%, we'd be fired on the spot, escorted to our vehicle, and that would be that. And one of our instructors uh, actually told us that that happened to him, the first go-around through the academy that he had. He explained it to us in, in you know, great detail, that he didn't take the test seriously. Turns out he, he got below a 60. They escorted him to his vehicle. He, they dismissed him entirely, except it was the worst day of his life. And so our instructors really leaned on that for us. And, uh, and what that amounted to for me was every time I passed a test, I would, I would celebrate for about a half of a second, and then my mind would immediately shift into, but what about the next one? You know, every, every test was multiple choice, and they told us that basically two of the, one of the options, you know, A, B, C, D, most multiple choice tests are like this. One of the options is an easy no. Uh, one of the options is kind of plausible, but two of the options could be right. And I remember thinking, what if I just happen to study the wrong pages, and I guess wrong, and the stars align, and I get below a 60, and I, I just remember making myself sick thinking, how on earth would I face the people in my life if they found out that I couldn't hack it? Because you know, I had told the church that I got this job. I told people for two and a half years this was my dream job, and I had all these people praying for me, and I just thought, how on earth would I be able to face them? And so what that translated to for me was, was basically six months of low-grade anxiety because that's how long the academy was. And the reason for that anxiety is because in a very real sense, the fire department hadn't really accepted me. That's why when they, when they mail you your letter of, uh, of invitation to the academy, they, they, they call it a conditional offer of employment, conditional, emphasis on conditional, which makes sense because the whole time you're in the academy, literally every moment of every day, they're evaluating you. And with every test, what they're functionally doing is they're demanding that you prove your worth, that you justify your existence, that you earn your keep all over again. Doesn't matter how many tests you pass before that, you have everything riding on the next one. And the funny thing about that is that the world that you live in does that to you every day of your life in different ways. All of us can relate to that. The world is, is constantly demanding that you prove yourself, that you justify your existence, that you, that you earn your keep, and it's constantly evaluating you. Every culture has done this to, to every person that's lived in that culture since mankind's inception. It's just a question of what lens they're evaluating you through. But in, in our culture, you and I are constantly being evaluated through the lens of, are you smart enough? Are you successful enough? Are you attractive enough? Uh, are, are your kids well enough behaved? Are they successful enough? Have you personally achieved enough? And the problem with, with being judged that way by the world is there's never a final exam. There's just a next exam. Meaning no matter how many times you prove yourself, you're always going to have to do it at least one more time. And so in the academy, I remember, I don't think I'll ever forget, the final test that I took. It was a test for Firefighter 2, and it was one of those ones where, you know, I, I had a lot of test anxiety to begin with, but I remember taking it and thinking, this could go either way. 
and they let us wait, and they let us sweat, and they played the mind games and all that kind of stuff, and they brought me and another group of people out on the bleachers out in the, in the yard, and they told us that if you were part of that group, it's because you passed your final test. And I walked away from the group. I walked on the other side of one of the burn buildings. I leaned up against it, and I broke down crying because it was like this, this horrible weight had been lifted, and I knew for the first time in six months that I was finally free from evaluation. Here's why I tell you that story. When Paul says that inside the church we're fellow citizens, he's saying that you should, it should feel exactly like that when you walk out of the world and into the church. He's saying that when you walk into the community of people who have been saved not by their looks, not by their careers, not by their, you know, the circles that they run with, the influence they have, the, the good decisions they've made, when you enter into the community of people who have been saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, it should feel like a burden has been lifted from your shoulders. Not just when you give your life to Jesus Christ personally, but when you spend time with other people who have done so. Because the gospel is supposed to create a community unlike any community the world's ever seen, in which the people, because we know we didn't work our way into this community, we didn't earn our way into it, it's been given to us purely by grace, the gospel is meant to create a community in which we don't demand that you prove your worth. We're not constantly evaluating each other. We're not constantly demanding that you prove, you know, that you have to justify your existence. And so what this means for me personally is that, here's what this commands me, actually. When I look at a Christian brother or sister, this means if I've given my life to Jesus, I don't have the right to look at a Christian brother or sister. I really, really don't have any right to look at anybody like this, but especially I don't have the right to look at a Christian brother or sister through the lens that the rest of the world looks at them at. I don't have a right to look at somebody through the lens of how attractive they are, uh, how successful they are, how much money they have, or what they can do for me. I look at them through the lens of what Jesus Christ already has done for them. I choose to look at them through the lens of, what, of how God views them, and they do the same for me. That's what it means to be, first and foremost, fellow citizens. Secondly, Paul says we're not only fellow citizens, but number two, we're, we're, we're members of God's household. I asked the 9 a.m. this question, um, but I just want to see if I got a 100% hit rate today. Has anybody heard the story of the war of Jenkins' ear by show of hands? Not including if you're attending from the 9 a.m. Don't worry about it. I'll tell you in a second. <laughs> so that's, that's zero people across two servers. I'm so excited about this. You're going to think I'm making this up. This is a true story. You can go home and Google it. In uh, 1739, when Britain was at the height of its naval power, uh, a, uh, a lone British vessel was attacked wrongfully by the Spaniards, Spanish Armada. And the captain of the vessel was uh, Captain Jenkins. In this battle, he actually had one of his ears cut off by a sword, uh, but he escaped. And he he, he, he grabbed his ear and he preserved it by shoving it in a bottle of liquor, which I'm guessing nobody was sipping from on the way home. So he sailed back to Britain. Uh, he stood before Parliament. He told them what happened. He held up his ear, and just like that, Parliament declared war on Spain. It was called, famously, uh, the War of Jenkins' Ear. Let me just ask you the question. Why on earth would Britain do something like that? Let me ask it this way. Was one man's ear worth all of that? 
I mean, you're, you're talking about leveraging the military might of an entire nation against the Spanish Armada, which was no joke back then. That's a whole lot of calories to burn for one soldier's ear. Uh, was his ear that valuable? The answer is no. So the question is, why did Britain go through all that trouble? And there's really only one answer. It's because Captain Jenkins was a member of their household. That's why. So in their mind, for the Spanish Armada to come at him was like the, the, the Spanish Armada coming, coming at every one of them. In their mind, if he was attacked, it meant that they were all attacked. If he was wounded, it meant that they were all wounded. If he was going through something, it meant they were all going through something. So they all rallied to his side. And when Paul says that this community of Jesus followers that we call the church, when he refers to it as members of God's household, that's exactly what he's getting at. He's saying that the bonds between believers should be, should be so tight, they should be so strong, such that when one of us goes through something, it's as though every one of us is going through something. Now, what that doesn't mean, what it can't mean, logistically, what it actually is just impossible for it to mean, is that everybody knows everybody else. What it does mean is that absolutely everybody is known by somebody else. So that when any of us goes through anything, none of us have to go through it alone. Members of God's household. But the last image we see here, which for whatever reason was the grabbiest to me, Paul says that we're stones in a building. And this building is not just any structure. Paul tells us that the building we come together to, to form, he says, is a holy sanctuary in which the Spirit of God is meant to dwell. Now, that's obviously a very clear nod to the temple. And to understand what Paul's saying here and what it means for us, you have to understand the function the temple served in Old Testament Israel. And, and something that I think we, we often forget is that the temple in the nation of Israel, it was not only the place of ministry, it was the base of ministry. And what that means is that, on the one hand, the temple, uh, it was basically, the, the, if you want to think of it, as the cultural institution through which people had an encounter with God. Right? In Israel, it wasn't like it is today. You know, it's not like if you didn't like that temple, you could just drive down you know, whatever their Ritchie Highway was and find 17 other temples where you could have a better experience. There's just one temple where uh, the Word is taught. There's one temple where worship happened. There's one temple where sacrifices were made. There's this one temple where people can encounter the presence of God. Without that, you really couldn't interact with God the way that he had prescribed you to interact with him. So on the one hand, it was the place of ministry, but, but on top of that, it was also the base of ministry, meaning the temple didn't just care for people spiritually, it cared for them practically. It was through the money given to the temple that, that people who had needs that would otherwise go unmet were met. It was through the money given to the temple that the poor and the weak and the needy and the sick and the widow and the foreigner who would otherwise fall through the cracks, who would otherwise have to go through life alone and die alone were cared for so that they could get a second chance at life. And so, once again, the Ephesians had never heard of anything like this. But what, what Paul is saying here, this is this, this incredible, you know, global vision that now followers of Jesus, everywhere the gospel went, Followers of Jesus would come together to form these little miniature temples. We ourselves would be a, a little miniature version of the temple in every nation, tribe, and tongue. What Paul is saying here is that the community of Jesus' followers would be a community of profound purpose. And he's saying that as brothers and sisters in Christ would come together and join together, just like stones had to be joined together in order to become the temple, that as we lay our lives down and come together, we would grow in the ability to become something that none of us could be on our own. 
we would become a group of people who have the ability to do what the temple once did, which is to extend the power and the presence of God into the world in order that lives might be changed. So just as kind of a 30,000-foot flyover here, that's, that's in, a, in a nutshell, in a superficial sense, what, what Paul is saying here, the church is. First off, it, it's a community in which everyone is afforded honor and dignity and respect. It's where you get a break. You get to rest from the game that the rest of the world demands that you play every moment of your life, where finally you, can, you don't have to misrepresent. You don't have to prove. You don't have to earn. Secondly, it's a community in which no one has to go through anything alone in which if you're going to war, you have brothers and sisters going to war with you and for you. You know, the, the church is meant to be a place where if, if your marriage is in trouble, you have brothers and sisters rallying to your side, going to war for your marriage, going to war for your kids, going to war for your family, going to war for you so that the image of Christ can continue to be formed in you. And thirdly, lastly, this community is meant to be a community in which people from radically different backgrounds with radically different preferences and opinions unite together to serve a common cause that's greater than any one of us that requires every one of us. So let's play a fun game and ask ourselves, and I'll just go the, the, first, the last two years here. Let's ask the question over the last two years, is that what the church is known for? <laughs> Let me get a little bit more surgical here. Over the last two years, which I think has revealed a lot, not just about the culture, but about the church, I'm sure you would agree, over the last two years, would people outside the faith look on the, to the faith and say, you know, this world is, is really an exhausting place, but I, I got to tell you, I just, I, I feel so safe when I'm around Christians. I feel like I just get a break when I'm around Christians because they treat other people with so much honor and so much respect. It's like they're the one community that I don't have to pretend I'm something I'm not when I'm around them. Over the last two years, would people outside looking in say about the church, you know, even, I don't understand why Christians do everything the way they do everything. I don't understand everything that they believe, but you have to admire the way that they stick together. And because in, in the culture at large, it just seems like people are constantly arguing. People are constantly fighting. People are, are constantly trying to humiliate each other or, or find something somewhere in your background that I can use to completely discredit you and ruin your life but meanwhile, those Christians, even if they don't see eye to eye about everything, even if they don't agree about every little, you know, open-handed issue in the culture, they drop everything to run to each other's side. I wish I had that kind of unity with somebody in my life. I wish I grew up in a family that cared for me the way Christians care for other Christians. Or, or lastly, let's ask the question, would people outside looking in say, you know, one of the things that you have to admire about the church is that they are so Christians are so willing to shelf their opinions, to shelf their preferences, to set their differences aside, and to come together for a common cause that's bigger than any one of them that requires every one of them. They're willing to die to themselves to be a part of what they're called to be a part of. Maybe you see why I consider these verses to be the most convicting verses we're going to study in, in, in this series, the first four chapters of Ephesians, because the clear answer is no. No, the church isn't known for that. And while it's easy to just beat up on the church as this kind of intangible entity, what I've been forced to come to terms with this week is that I'm not known for that either. But I want to be, and I want us to be, and I would love if the church in general was known for this, that this was the first thing that came to people's mind when they think about followers of Jesus. So the question is, how can we become that? 
because that's something that I would want to be a part of. And, I, and hopefully I can speak for you and say that you would too. So how do we become fellow citizens, members of God's household, and stones that come together to form the holy sanctuary that houses the presence of God? I see two answers to that question, both in a verse included in this passage. It's Ephesians 2.20. We moved past it so quickly you might not have even caught it. But Ephesians 2.20 says that this whole nation, this whole household, this whole building, Paul says, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And what I see here is basically Paul's formula for becoming what we're called to be. And it boils down to just two things, a foundation and a focal point. The foundation of this, Paul says, the only way that this can become, this vision can become realized is number one, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and number two, with the focal point, the cornerstone, is Jesus Christ himself. So let me just walk through both sides of this, and, and, and then we'll be done today. First off, Paul says that this whole thing must be built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Uh, when Paul uses that phrase, the apostles and prophets, that's just his way of referring to Scripture. And when he says that, that, that Scripture, the Bible, has to be the foundation, if you want to know what he means, just ask yourself, what does a foundation functionally do? When a foundation is laid for a building, that foundation is not a suggestion about where the other stones might be placed. That foundation determines everything else that happens from there on up. And so, therefore, to have the Bible... As your foundation, which Paul says is absolutely foundational, it's non-negotiable, if you want to be a part of this, to have the word of God as the foundation of your and my life means that we are willing to take every thought, every opinion, every preference, every desire, every impulse that we have, we lay that before the word of God and we say, God, you get the final say in my life. Paul says this vision will never be anything other than a vision unless followers of Jesus can accept that. Now, if I were preaching in a different time and place, I think I could just move on from this because it's pretty straightforward. But as it stands, I'm preaching in the United States in the year 2022, which a lot of sociologists have pointed out is, is perhaps the most individualistic culture in the history of mankind's existence. And what that means is that our culture has created and is continually creating, you look anywhere out in culture, I think you'll, you'll see this to be true, our culture has a way of producing people that are more skeptical and more cynical to any kind of institution or authority outside of us than really any society has been before us. And so I'll just say that, that even if it seems uh, very common sense to you that you need to submit yourself to the authority of God's word and let it determine how you think and how you live, I'll just point out that you know and you love people who hear that and, and think that's the craziest sounding thing imaginable. And it is in our culture. To people outside, you know, the church looking in, this, this idea that I would, I would subject myself to the authority of this book and allow it to determine the course of my life, the fact that I would allow anything outside of me to determine the course of my life sounds crazy. It sounds crazy until you realize that no matter who you are or what you believe, all of us are already doing that. What I mean is you call yourself you know, traditional or modern, secular or religious, no matter what, every single one of us has some sort of authority in our lives that we are allowing to really dictate how we think and how we live. Let me walk through that. So first off, for ancient people in Paul's day, 
uh, and actually it's still the case in a lot of traditional cultures today, your ultimate source of authority in your life was your family, your, your clan, your tribe, your nation. Uh, a, a, actually, a, a great uh, picture of this to kind of let you see what this looks like up close and personal. There was recently a book that became a bestseller, uh, and then it became a movie called Crazy Rich Asians, which gives, a, um, I think, a really helpful behind-the-scenes look at what a traditional culture is like, which is super foreign to most of us in this culture. But in a traditional culture, your family, this is going to sound absolutely crazy to a lot of us, but in a traditional culture, your family determines who you marry. It doesn't really matter who you want to marry. You marry who your family tells you to marry. You take the job your family tells you to take. Uh, your life goes according to the way your family says your life goes to go. You, you basically, you are who your, your family tells you that you are. And there's actually a lot of benefits to living in a society like that, although it's obviously not without its problems. But my point is, we don't live in a traditional society. We live in a modern society. And modern society is based on an idea that has really never been tested. Modern society is based on an idea that we have never seen a society uh, try to be built on that we're only now beginning to see the effects of. Uh, and it's so ingrained in us that you, you almost miss it if you don't pay attention to it. In, in, in a modern culture, you don't go to the family, to, to the tribe, to the nation, to the clan to tell you who you are or how you live. In, in modern culture, you're taught to look inside your own heart for the answers to those questions. So, so within a, in a modern society, you have to determine what's right and wrong for yourself. You have to determine what's true and what's false for yourself. You have to determine who you are and how you're going to live. And, and actually, it's cowardly if you let anybody else try to answer those questions for you. So great example of this. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Sandlot, but there's this scene in The Sandlot where the ghost of Babe Ruth appears in, I believe his name is Benny Rodriguez's closet. He manifests himself and he says, uh, what does he say? He says, heroes get remembered but legends never die. 35 years old, still got no clue what the heck he's talking about. But right after that, he says, and this is it, he says, follow your heart, kid, and you'll never go wrong. That is, you know, Judaism had its Ten Commandments. Modern society has its one commandment. That's the one commandment of modern society. Follow your heart. Uh, it's a harmless-sounding idea, harmless enough that they put it in a kid's baseball movie, but I hope if we can zoom out from that any amount, that all of us have the self-awareness to admit that first off, your heart is full of conflicting desires. So if you follow your heart, you're, you're very soon going to be at a fork in the road. You know, for instance, we, we have in our hearts, as people create in the image of God, we have, a, we have a desire for deep community, but we also want to dedicate our lives to our careers and achieve personal individual success. If you don't see how that's eventually going to create a fork in the road for you, you're just not paying attention. Uh, you know, on a lighter note, I joked about this at the 9 a.m., you'll also find desires in your heart to eat things that taste good and look good in a bathing suit. Those are conflicting desires. You're going to have to say yes to one, no to the other one. So it's kind of like a lighthearted way to make the point. But beyond that, our hearts are also full with, with a whole lot of desires that if followed are going to cause us and the people around us a great deal of pain. Right? Every, every broken family, every damaged relationship, every addiction has underneath it somewhere somebody who submitted to their heart and the desires therein as the ultimate unquestioned source of authority in their life. It always hurts a lot of people, including the person who decides to follow their own heart. And so all of that to say, Paul's point here is that the church 
will be a unique community. Anthony did a great job of explaining this last week. God's desire for the church is not to create one more group in humanity. It's to create a new humanity. And according to Paul's words here, one of the things that would make us so unique is that in traditional cultures, you let your family tell you who you are and how to live. In modern cultures, you let your heart tell you who you are and how to live. What Paul's saying here is that in the church, you let God tell you who you are and how to live. What's fascinating, again, if I was preaching in a different culture, I don't think I'd have to, to, to really go over any of this. But, but the way that modern people think, you know, submitting to the Bible as the final source of authority in my life, that seems so restrictive, that seems so oppressive, that seems like it's going to, you know, make my life so narrow and closed-minded. But I, I, ironically, I think the exact opposite is the truth. I think that it's only when you and I are willing to submit to God's Word as the final authority in our life, I think that's the most liberating thing imaginable, and here's why. When you submit to the authority of God's Word... As the ultimate authority in your life, you gain the ability to question everything else in your life. I don't know if you've ever thought of it like that, but let me go through four examples of this. First off, when you submit to the Bible as the final authority in your life, then in that moment, you gain the ability to question absolutely everything that I say. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. One of the main reasons that Christianity can't rightly be called a cult is because we all have the same Bible, right? If Christianity was every week, I get a private direct revelation from God, and then on Sundays you all just have to take my word for it, you could call us a cult, and we would get very weird very quickly. But as it stands, we all have the word of God in our hands. What that means is if anything that I ever say doesn't line up with what God has said in his word, you have full permission to completely ignore me. Secondly, When you submit to the Bible as the final authority in your life, you gain the ability to question what your culture says. And I'll just point this out, apart from something, apart from the word of God as your plumb line by which you determine what is is the truth and what is a lie, what is bad and what will result in human flourishing, then you're, you're basically at the mercy of whichever way the cultural winds happen to be blowing. And you might hear some things that sound ridiculous and some things that you agree with, but at the end of the day, you're not going to know why you believe anything's right or anything's wrong. You, you, won't be, you won't know why it's better to live an unselfish life than a selfish life. You won't know why people have intrinsic value and dignity and shouldn't be treated like property. You won't have a good reason for believing anything that you believe. But when you submit yourself to the Bible... As the final authority in your life, you now have a plumb nine against which you can measure everything you hear. It takes you out of your culture and gives you the ability to critique it. Thirdly, when you submit to the Bible, it gives you the ability to question what your family says. And for some of us, that means a whole lot. Because on any given Sunday, I know that there's a number of people here who are coming out of very broken, very abusive families. And I'm willing to bet that there's, there's things that come to your mind that you think of, that your family told you who you were. And here's the good news. When you, when you submit yourself to the Bible, what your family tells you you are is no longer the defining factor in your life. It's what God tells you you are. But fourthly and lastly, and I'll move on after this one, when you submit to the Bible, when you take the Bible as your foundation, you, you gain the ability to question what your own heart says. Now, and here's why that's so important. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. John says, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. 
And what that's talking about, and I'm sure that there's a number of people who can relate to this. What John is talking about is a scenario in your life when your own heart is telling you that you're a failure. Your own heart is telling you that you're worthless, that you have no value, that you've messed up your life so badly it's beyond repair, there's no point even continuing. That's, that's when your own heart is condemning you. And I'll, just, I'll, I'll tell you, if you don't have in those moments, if you don't have an authority source external to your heart that can argue with your heart, then, then when you find yourself in those situations in life, you'll sink because you have nothing that can pull you out of that. But when you and I submit to God's word as the final source of authority in our lives, in that moment, John would say, you now have a God that's greater than your heart, that can argue with your heart, that can get you out of the pits that your heart will lead you into. And sooner or later, we're all going to need that. We're all going to need that. Now, those are all the benefits of, of making God's word the foundation of our lives. But, but the flip side of this coin, I have to touch on this before I move forward, is that because Christians have believed this for 2,000 years, because the Bible is not the product of any one culture, and in, 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 instead it's the product of a God who transcends all culture, here's what that means. It means we should be willing to accept and we should even expect that there's a lot of things God's going to say in this book that's going to cut across the natural intuitions of my heart. There's going to be a lot of things that I read here that are going to challenge what my culture says. They're going to challenge what my family says and it's even going to challenge what my heart says. And a Christian, Paul is saying, a Christian is a person who even in those times, even when you come across something where, where, where you can't understand why God is saying what he's saying, and you might not even like what he's saying. That means when I come across some, something in the Bible and I find myself saying, God, I don't understand why you have to say that when it comes to race. God, I don't understand why you say that when it comes to the sanctity of life. God, I don't understand why you have to say what you say about human sexuality or, or, or why you say what you say about how I'm to treat my possessions and the generosity you've called me to practice to help those with less than me. A Christian, Paul says, is somebody who when they come across something in the Bible that contradicts them, they say, God, I, don't, I might not like this, I might not understand this, but I don't need to. Your word is the foundation for my life. You get the final say. Paul says that foundation is an absolute non-negotiable in becoming what God desires his church to be. And I think when you zoom out from the last two years, one of the things that's come to the surface is that a lot of people, even within the church, have something functionally other than the Bible as the foundation of their life. And what do you call, I mean, if you think about it this way, using Paul's analogy, what do you call a building that has more than one foundation? It's not a building anymore, it's a ruin. So Paul says that's absolutely mission critical that followers of Jesus submit to the word of God, not as suggestions from an advisor, but as commands from our king. But even that by itself isn't enough. And the reason we know that is because there was a group of people in Jesus' day who were more committed to the Bible than any of us ever will be. They had larger portions of it memorized than we will. They, they, they went through it. They found more than 600 laws in it. They governed every day of their lives by every one of those laws. They were known as the Pharisees. Paul, the author of Ephesians, was one of them before he became a Christian. And Jesus, during his time here, looked at them and he said, you search the scriptures because you think you'll find life in them. But Jesus said, those scriptures are testifying about me. And what Jesus 
Jesus' point there, and if this doesn't sober you up, I I, I just don't think you're thinking it through. Jesus' point is you can dedicate your entire life to the Bible. You can get a PhD in biblical studies and completely miss what the Bible's about. Jesus says, it's all about me. That's why Paul says it's not enough. The church can't be the church if it just has the Bible, its foundation. It needs to have Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. What that means for us today is that no matter how long we've studied a Bible verse, we have not rightly understood it until it leads us to Jesus Christ, the stone that the builders rejected so that you and I could be brought into the family of God, so that we could be accepted and loved and cherished by God. And the point of this book is not to just amass more information. It's to get us to lay more of our lives on Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of our lives. Only then can we become what we're called to be. Now, if I were you, I'd be asking the question, what does believing in Jesus as the cornerstone have to do with creating the community that Paul describes here? How do those two things relate to one another? And to to close today, I want to tell you a story that answers that question. I don't know if you've ever heard of Ernest Gordon. Ernest Gordon was a British soldier in World War II He was captured by the Japanese, and he was made to work alongside thousands of other prisoners of war uh, on what's called the Death Railroad. It was a uh, railroad along the valley of the Kwai River in Thailand. Um, The conditions were so awful that 1 to 2,000 soldiers died for every five miles of track that was laid. Ernest Gordon survived his time in that death camp, uh, and he wrote a memoir describing the conditions and the effect that it had on the men. Let me just read this to you. I I came across this story some time ago, and I knew knew I'd use it. I've been saving it on my computer, and I, I realized this is it. Here's how he described it. He said, Death was everywhere, and as conditions worsened, our lives became poisoned by selfishness, hate, and fear. Formerly, we'd huddled together because of our fears, believing that there was safety in numbers. We'd still shown some consideration for one another. Now that was gone, completely swept away. Existence had become so miserable, the odds so heavy against us, that nothing mattered except to survive. We lived by the rule of the jungle, red in tooth and claw, the evolutionary law of the survival of the fittest. It was a case of I look out for myself and to hell with everyone else. Everybody was his own keeper, and all the restraints of morality were gone. Until one afternoon, when something happened. A shovel was missing at the end of the day. The officer in charge became enraged. He demanded the missing shovel be produced or else. When no one in the squadron volunteered that they had taken the shovel, the officer got out his gun and threatened to kill every one of them on the spot. Suddenly one man stepped forward. I took it, he said. The officer put away his gun, picked up a shovel, and beat the man to death on the spot. At the second tool check, this time No shovel was missing. There had actually been a miscount at the first check. The word spread like wildfire through the whole camp. An innocent man had been willing to die to save everyone else. And the incident had a huge effect. We began to treat each other like brothers. Another man was caught trading with the local people, railroad ties for medicines for one of his dying comrades, and he was sentenced to death for it. He submitted to his death, reading from a little Bible, and then cheering up the chaplain right before his execution. This is the last line. Death was still with us, no doubt about that, but we were being slowly freed from its destructive grip. What happened in that story 
is one man's act of sacrificial love for a community of people that did nothing to deserve it. That one act changed a jungle into a community. And I'll just tell you that if a human being, if a human being has the power to do that for prisoners of war, then the Son of God has the power to do that for people that were once prisoners of sin. Let me call the worship team up and we'll close with this. I would probably, two years ago, I just would have left this teaching here and, and closed it down. Maybe this is just for me. Maybe this means to somebody else. Living, the, the last two years, for me at least, have taught me in a, in a more personal way. I've joked about this before. It's more real to me now. Living as this kind of community that, that the Word of God calls us to here sounds like a great idea until you actually try to do it. Because if there's one thing that people don't need to be taught to do that we're all very good at doing, it's hurting each other. And the truth is that as long as the church is full of people, it's going to be full of problems. And with that, there's, there's this huge temptation to just withdraw. And I think this is what a lot of people have done. I mean, every one of us has to search our hearts before God and ask, maybe this is what I've done. But with that, with all that pain, with that criticism, with that rejection, with that woundedness, there's always going to be this temptation to just withdraw and stay away. Or, or to maybe just attend church but treat it like it's just an event that you attend once a week and you keep everybody at an arm's like you keep them out of your life. The problem with that is that that violates God's design for your and my life. We, we looked at the same four verses today. You looked at these images that Paul laid out for us. You can't be fellow citizens with the saints. You can't be members of God's household. You can't be stones that come together to form God's holy sanctuary apart from being willing to enter into the lives of other people and allow them to enter into your life. And when you do that, it's not going to be long before it gets painful. And so the only way that I know that you and I are going to be able to continually become the community that God's called us to be is by going back to Jesus and seeing him as the man who gave his life for us on the Kwai River. See Jesus loving us and serving us and forgiving us and laying down his life for us and dying for us even though we didn't deserve it. Because it's as we see Jesus doing that for us that we gain the ability to do that for one another. And we grow into this picture of fellow citizens, members of God's household, and stones of his holy sanctuary. We're going to close today with communion. I have one final song. And at the end of the song, I'll come up and we'll take communion together. But as this song plays... I want to invite you to come to the table nearest to you. Take the bread, take the juice, take it back to your seat, and take some time. This is the time to do this, to deal with God and to allow God to deal with you. I don't have any idea what God would specifically say to you through Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, but I think this is an incredible time for us as God's people to come before God with open hands and ask him, God, what, what needs to change in me so that we can become what we're called to be. Because the greatest threat to the health and growth and unity of this church is and always has been what's going on inside of my own heart. Now for some of us, maybe there's sin you need to repent of. Maybe there's people that you need to apologize to. For others, maybe there's wounds that you need to heal from and people that you need to forgive. But wherever you're coming from today, we find the strength to do what we need to do as we go back to the cross and make Jesus Christ the cornerstone of our lives. That's it. That's all. Let's take communion. We're going to take communion together and I'll dismiss us in prayer. But before that, let me just read these verses over us one more time. 
So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building being put together by him grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Let's take the bread and the cup and remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, which was the price that it cost him to bring us into the family of God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Would you please stand with me? Father God, we simply, if we claim to be your people, these verses force us to come to terms with the reality that we cannot be what you've called us to be by ourselves. We can't be fellow citizens, members of your household, stones of your sanctuary, all by ourselves. You've called us to deep relationships. And that's so hard for us, so hard for me, because every one of us carries around hurts and pains and baggage that we project onto the people. God, we just need you to heal us. We need you to heal us through the gospel. We need to see more clearly than than we ever have one more time. We need to see all that Jesus was willing to go through for us, the price that he was willing to pay, the forgiveness, the mercy, the grace, the understanding that's been poured out on us by grace through faith in Jesus so that we might become together what none of us can be on our own. For your glory and our joy, in the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Have a great week, church.